Bienvenidos, mujeres y caballeros. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Brownie and Blue. This is MC, your host. This episode, I talk with Mike, who still trains elite special operators for our government. Mike breaks down a law enforcement officer's mindset from a recruit to a patrolman or woman to a specialty unit officer, such as a gang unit or narcotics detective. He also breaks down Jeff Cooper's color code. Jeff Cooper's color code describes the degrees of preparation for police use of deadly force, which this system is a mental one, not a physical one. Now, let's hear from Mike. Senores y señoras, mis hermanos, mis gentes. This is Brownie and Blue, baby, coming back at you with another episode. Thank you for joining me on this podcast. We're joined by Mike. Mike has an extensive career, not only in law enforcement, but also in the military. He served six years in the military uh, as a military police and special reaction team, a sniper, air assault, and also a military police investigator. After the military, he did 25 years of law enforcement in a large department within the DC metropolitan area. He was on a patrol on a bike team. He was a gang detective. He was also a ATF task force officer, a firearms training instructor, a motor officer, a motor instructor, a field training instructor. And he also played Santa Claus. <laughs> that was a joke <laughs> because he's done so many other things. Um, he's also been a president for two different employee groups uh, for 12 years. He was a sergeant at arms at a state level for one of those groups. And currently, Mike is working as a federal employee with an elite group of highly trained teams in a global capacity. And he's been working there for three years. And that is extremely extensive as far as what we're about to get into, Mike, which is the topic of mindset. Is there anything on this bio resume that I left out? Uh, no, uh, no, you, you pretty much nailed it. Um, as, as vague as you can possibly be, uh, you nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> we got to protect the identity. You know what I mean? So it's, uh, yeah. it's, it's the yeah. knowledge, it's the knowledge that you have and just by your resume and everything that you've done, uh, especially with the training aspect is is huge, um, especially when it comes to what we're going to talk about, which is, I think, one of the most important factors in in law enforcement, but also in life, right? So they all just kind of go synonymous. Yeah. Um, to start it off, though, you know, what was your inspiration or motivation to have a career in law enforcement? Um, so... <clears throat> I'm giving away a little bit of a clue, but uh, I grew up as a child of the 70s and the 80s, and uh, I grew up in a, uh, a military family. My dad was a, uh, a Marine, and uh, he did 32 years in the Marine Corps, and that does not just go away. Uh, this is instilled in us, and having the, the right and wrong uh, instilled in us at that point, growing up through those developmental years. But then I also grew up in the years of Chips, Starsky and Hutch, not the movie, the original TV series, um, the original SWAT. Um, 
911, uh, Rescue 911, the original series, you know, the guys with the, uh, the perms and the big collars, you know. But, you know, these guys were hard chargers. You know, they went after the bad guys no matter what. Uh, they gave up and sacrificed for each other. And uh, I grew up on that. Um, and it wasn't until um, I'd say about 15, 16 years old that uh, I decided, you know what, I think law enforcement's for me because um, I ran from the MPs a lot. You know, when we lived on a military base, I ran from them a lot. I'd sneak out all hours of the night. I'd run from them. I'd climb trees. And cops never look up uh, for some strange reason. Um, but I always hung out in the trees. Um, and so I learned from that. And uh, so then I decided, you know what? Yeah, Pop was right. Uh, I think uh, I have some gifts to give. College probably isn't for me right now but uh, the military is. So at 17, with their blessings, I joined the military and uh, with a delayed entry. But my goal was to be a police officer. My goal was to right wrongs. It wasn't any, anything specific. Nothing was done to me. I was never a victim of anything. I grew up in a military uh, family. I grew up on a, a DOD facilities. So crime wasn't, wasn't a huge motivator for me but i never i never stood by and stood still when i saw someone being wronged uh, i was always vocal uh, very vocal uh, to the point where i would get into fist fights on the playground with other kids that were bullying other kids uh, it, it pissed me off uh, so to that point or to to the to the motivation point um, my final, I guess my final landing pad as to where I wanted to be, because I was thinking about going down to Florida, uh, through the end of my career in the military, but, um, I got a speeding ticket from a motor cop and all he did was step out in front of me, stick his finger out, his index finger, pointing me over the shoulder of the road. And I was speeding. I was going fast. And this dude had no fear. It might have been because I was driving his 1979 Triumph Spitfire. He knew he could probably crush the car with, with his boots. But um, I pulled over nonetheless, and he gave me a tongue lashing that I deserved um, and wrote me a ticket, and I deserved it. And I was like, damn it, that's what I want to do. This is me. This is, this is the department I want to go to. Um, and Oddly enough, I ended up training his son later on uh, in my career. <laughs> so full circle. Um, but no, I, that, that's the reasons why. It wasn't anything. Uh, I was never the victim of anything. I, was, I never had any huge motivations, but I just wanted to right wrongs. I, uh, I, never, I never appreciated bullies. And, uh, and I think uh, when you look at law enforcement, you look at the mentality of law enforcement, you look at the cops that, that do the job every day, um, that they are, they are the, uh, they are the sheepdogs. Uh, they're the ones who protect against the wolves. That's, that was my motivation. You touched on a couple of things that I think are also 
reasons for why people join law enforcement and even the military. Um, you know, one is camaraderie. And then two, you talked about just kind of righting wrongs, whether they've been done to you or whether you've seen it with, you know, other people, as you talked about, just even on the playground with bullies and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's a very common, I would say, characteristic or trait um, for somebody to have to get into law enforcement, which is to be a protector, which is what you were describing. And then in law enforcement training, so your, your background, a lot of it, like you were a firearms instructor, um, you were also in the academy, and I'm sure you did a lot of other informal training with all the specialty teams. And now you train, um, you know, very high working individuals federally. But mm -hmm. so my question to you is, you know, the, in the academy, and just overall, like the mindset, quote unquote, the mindset is stressed a lot. So to you, what does this mindset consist of, in your opinion? And how does that translate to like real life in job situations that deal with law enforcement? So the misconception is um, that you can change someone's mindset. You can't do that. Um, and it's very difficult for as an instructor to take someone who is looking to get into law enforcement. Um, and as an instructor, you hopefully, at that, at that tenure in your career, you've seen it, you've done it, you've, you've uh, put into practical exercise what you're teaching. Um, otherwise, no one is gonna believe it, number one, number two. Um, you're not gonna be able to replicate it under stress. So, the difficulty is when you have someone who comes into law enforcement who, and I saw this generational uh, from 2001 when I was um, first, uh, I first uh, became a firearms instructor, then I became a DT instructor. Um, but as a firearms instructor, I never saw, uh, or I started to see the the, the decline uh, from 2001 to about 2009, uh, less and less uh, import, importance being placed on the recruitment of individuals who have rightfully or wrongfully been punched in the face before. Mm -hmm. um, and you start to see the mindset of the individuals who are coming into this career path thinking, oh, well, I'm just gonna put this gun on, this badge on, and people are gonna obey my authority. Um, and they're gonna, we're gonna have a, a great day. It's gonna be rainbows and unicorns. And then they start to realize that, oh shit, you know, I'm, I'm gonna get spit on. Uh, people are gonna, they're gonna wanna fight me just because of the uniform that I'm wearing, but they don't get that. They don't understand the hatred that is, that is laid out towards law enforcement. And it might not be just towards law enforcement, it could be our brothers and sisters in the fire department as well, because they wear badges, because they represent um, help, they represent that, that assistance that is needed. So it is the, mis it is the uh, mindset where people come in and um, as an instructor, as a, particularly as a firearms instructor, because you're not teaching them how to uh, pillow fight them. You know, you're not teaching pillow fights, you're teaching lethal force. You're teaching them, this is a firearm, 
This will and can kill if used correctly. So you want to, um, uh, we want to stress inoculate them. And doing the stress inoculation um, as a cadre, we decided to uh, show some, um, some, we call them, and I hate to use the term, especially with this, but it's called cop die videos. Um, but we didn't use these videos to critique or to criticize how the officer and the officer's failures, but it was to expose to the recruits. This is the potential. This is what you can, this is what can happen to you if you fail to adjust your mind to accept the fact that not everything you do is going to be perfect. But when it fails, you have to survive. So you would see it throughout the academy. Strive to survive, strive to survive, strive to survive, everywhere. Well, what does that mean? That means that you have to have the physical and mental capability of knowing that when shit goes wrong, that you're able to adapt and overcome and win. And there are some, some cadets or some recruits that would come through that you could just look at them and see them. They would complain about their fingers hurting from pulling the trigger 10 times. You're like, what? Uh, there were people that would cry um, because uh, they, they would, they would, they would miss a, a prequel and they would cry. Um, they would complain about the times uh, of the, uh, of the course of fire for the qualification. And they would say it was just, it's just impossible. They would complain about their pants, you know, it to the point where you're like, why are you blaming shifting blame on everything else? But it, it, it is your, it is you, you have to own it. So your mindset comes from your your ability, and the mindset of uh, of the uh, of law enforcement should always be um, that you will succeed, uh, that you will win, that you will go to the to the uh, to the mat, and you will win every single time. Um, the self defeatist attitude has to be eradicated, and that is the problem. Uh, but that, I saw some of that transitional, you know, where they stopped hiring from some of the military guys and started going towards colleges, more towards the the people that were uh, of they had larger vocabulary than than I. And the only reason why I have used a five letter word is because I pluralize cuss words. Um, so that was the change and the shift in the uh, in the hiring dynamics. And it, it came from on high. Um, and then that's when you started seeing a shift in the dynamics of the street and how people were being managed. I think uh, what comes to mind is the great philosopher, Mike Tyson, <laughs> who, said, oh. Every, oh, yeah. who said everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. Exactly. And then what happens to your plan, right? You have to be able to adapt. And if someone punched me in the face, and it, it has happened, I've been punched in the face. But what did I do? I punched back. I didn't step back and reassess and look at him. I punched back. I got into it. I, I jumped on him. I, I fought him. Um, there are people out there that are wearing the badge and the gun right now that have never been punched in the face, whether they're on the job 
on the playground or just out mixing it out with other people. They have never been punched in the face. And when it happens, unfortunately, it's going to happen when they're on the job and they're not going to have any idea how to handle it. Yeah. And, and I've seen it as well. Um, you have people that come into the job for different reasons and they do different aspects of a career track or whether they just want to sit behind a church and never answer a call or get into dangerous mm -hmm. or possibly dangerous situations, or deal with certain calls. And that's the unfortunate right. nature. There's the good and the bad. There, you talked about the good where, you know, the great aspect of the mindset is for you, it was solidified at an early age, but you had that background. You know, for mm -hmm. me, you know, I, I, one of the things that I think uh, plays a huge part in the mindset that you're talking about is also sports and being on teams and learning how to, in a sense, go through adversity in losing or winning games, being a good winner, being a, a good loser in a sense. And then at the same time, what type of sports are you into? And then also just driving yourself to be better in whatever it is physically. Uh, because I think when you, for me, I speak for myself, when, I've, when I have challenged myself physically, you know, it, it's also a challenge mentally uh, because it makes you grow, right? You can't grow unless you struggle or you work on the weaknesses of what you have. And mm -hmm. so I went to college, but you know, hindsight 2020, I wish I would have gone to the military, but I went to college. I went the college route. Um, but sports Word. was a huge, yeah. <laughs> sports was a, <laughs> sports was a huge thing for me though, but also yeah. life lessons and, and, you know, I, I've, so yeah, I agree with you in certain aspects where, you know, there is a shift, especially now with law enforcement and the people that are hiring or, or get hired it's almost as if they are trying to hire people that have never done anything wrong. And that's just not life. And you can't, no. you can't put people in situations where they're going to be trying to build rapport and trying to, in a sense, make a difference or, you know, bridge a gap when they themselves feel like they're this holier than thou person. And they're looking mm -hmm. at situations and judging that or judging the person um, in, in kind of a demeaning way. And I'm not saying that's everybody. I'm just saying there's a there's a certain mindset with that as well. Do you agree? No, MC. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I absolutely agree. Um, and in in talking to um, the the athletics, right? Um, so <clears throat> I'll, I'll give an example. Um, it was uh, one year I was the lead instructor for a recruit class of about 40 going through firearms uh, portion. And I said, I mean, I'm trying to talk about the fundamentals. And when you start off with the fundamentals of marksmanship, you start off with stance, right? And you want to relate this to something that they're able to not only envision, but then relate to a, um, a practical exercise within real life that they've experienced themselves. So not only do they have the tactile, but now they have the imaginary. They're able to relate this and apply it under stress because it's something they've done before. So I asked all 40 students, I said, all right, guys, hands up. Uh, who here's uh, played like you know, baseball or football, you know, basketball, anything? Mm -hmm. One hand went up out of 40. One hand. I said, okay, what'd you play? 
And you said baseball. I said, all right. So what position did you play? I uh, played outfield. I said, all right. You'd be able to understand this. I said, did anyone in here play any other sport, whether it be ping pong? I don't care. If you want to call ping pong a sport, ping pong, you know, um, anything. Not a single hand went up. Not a single hand. I said, all right, who here has been in a fight? And this other hand went up. And I said, all right, you don't have to tell me about your fight, but, you know, where were you and, you know, how did it happen? And uh, he said, well, I was in the military and I was walking out of a bar and a buddy of mine was getting into an argument. Apparently he punched my buddy, so I punched him. I said, okay, well, did you win? He goes, yeah. I said, sweet, you won. Um, But the point was, is I wanted them to get into a stance, right? Mm -hmm. I wanted to take this relationships into a stance. The fact that only two people out of 40 were able to relate what I was trying to instruct was shocking to me to the point where I, on the next break, I went back into the office and I shut the door and I had to go to an immediate peer counseling because I was just, I was flabbergasted. We as law enforcement are considered tactical athletes. We are machines that should be well-tuned and we should be mentally prepared and physically prepared. It doesn't matter if you were a military in the military prior or you went to college, but you have to have the physical ability to de-stress yourself under stress. And when you have a class of 40 people and only two people either played sport or had been in a fight out of 40, that means that you have 38 victims in the room. Mm. Highly, protect, highly potential victims in the room that will not know what to do unless they seek additional training. Unless they, not, not that they have to seek out a sport or seek out a fight, but they have to seek additional training to understand what it is not to go to condition black and the Cooper's level of awareness. If they go to condition black, they're dead. When you go to condition red, your, your, your ability for cognitive thought is out. You have no ability to, to rationalize. You are, um, you are as gross motor skill as, uh, without going limp. Orange, yellow, that's where you want to function in, in, those, in those levels of awareness. That's where you want to be able to function tactically, operationally, and on normal day on a patrol. You should be always in, in yellow or orange because you're always a target. So you, you touched on something. Can you explain to the listeners um, the, those levels and what they mean and how that is incorporated with, you just touched on it. Can you do, can you give more of a yeah. kind of an educational <clears throat> aspect to that? Yeah. So Cooper's levels of awareness was, uh, was, it was taught to me um, 20, 25, 25 years ago, 20, uh, no, actually 28 years ago, 29 years ago, um, uh, by an instructor out at the, uh, out at our range. And it, it dawned on me because I started to relate this, uh, to some of the things that happened to me, you know, in schoolyard fights. Um, 
And you'd see it in some of these cop die videos. So condition white, condition white is um, you're at home, you are wrapped up in a nice uh, comforter or quilt, whatever, and you're watching your, your daytime stories and there's no threat to you. There's no possibility of a threat to you. Um, that's condition white. You're in your comfort zone. You're, you're around your own normal, what you want to function in. You can think, you can uh, eat, drink, you have no stress. Um, your muscles aren't, aren't fatigued. Uh, you're just relaxed. Right? So your heart rate's down, your breathing is down, you're almost in hibernation mode. Um, so as you bump it up into condition yellow, uh, condition yellow is uh, you're not necessarily under a respiratory distress or um, or circulatory distress, but you uh, you're under a heightened alert. So you're looking around. Um, you're always looking for that potential, uh, but you're on the hunt essentially. Um, so I would say that now you're outside of your comfort zone you're outside of your house you're outside of your cunt your quilt now you're in your car your patrol car uh or even you're driving driving you know driving home to and from work um but you're in condition yellow because you're height you're at a, at a higher level um you're not necessarily stressed under circulatory or uh respiratory stress but you're looking you're on the hunt orange uh orange means that you see something something, some stimulus has now alerted you to the fact that you need to act or react. Um, so you might be, uh, your brain is telling you, hey, uh, Mike, uh, that guy over there doesn't look right. Uh, and he's, uh, he's walking around with, uh, with a kid that doesn't seem to be wanting to be with him. So now, um, now I'm starting to digest what's going on. So now my, my respiratory might be going up, my circulation might be going up because now I'm starting to get my body, my physiological body is starting to react to what my brain is telling me, what I'm seeing. And so now my, res my respiratory, my respiration is gonna go up a little bit, my circulation is gonna go up a little bit um, because now the blood is leaving my core and going out to where I need it to be. It needs to be in the muscles, it needs to be in the, in the fibrous muscles. Because so, that's going to what's going uh, to to react to the threat, the potential of the threat. Condition red is I'm in it. Now I'm fighting the guy dragging this kid through a parking lot. Now I'm in it. I'm on him. I'm either chasing him. Um, I'm fighting him. I'm I'm dealing with him. Um, condition red is the fight is on. Uh, so uh, now I have to act. Now I have to defend myself. Defend the defend the victim take out the bad guy, whatever it needs to do, whatever needs to happen. Same thing with driving. So if you're in a pursuit, you see some driving along, all of a sudden you're in a pursuit. So things are clicking. Uh, you have the, uh, you have your, uh, you're starting to see things. You're starting to get uh, tunnel vision. Um, uh, you're, you're not able to speak. And, and those of you that are in law enforcement that are listening, you hear the guy on the radio that are that's screaming gibberish. Well, that person just went from red to black. Um, black is when you start repeating yourself, you start saying gibberish, you have absolutely no cognitive thought, you have no ability to, uh, to find motor skill or even gross motor skill. 
Um, and unfortunately, if there are some uh, videos that, that are out there on YouTube that you see someone repeating themselves consistently or saying the same thing over and over and over again, it's because they have this record player in their head is to, this is what I was trained to say. So they go back to that, but they play it over and over again and they don't act. They just think if I say this over and over again, it's going to work. Well, no, uh, that guy, that girl has a plan to kill you and you have to act. Well, condition black is they've just shut down. Their, their fine motor skills, their cognitive thinking is going, uh, is, is shut down. The brain is shut down. The body is now in a um, flight and they can't flight. They have to fight and the body doesn't want to fight. Um, so. That's why I say that law enforcement in particular are tactical athletes and you need to train yourself as a tactical athlete to deal with what happens physiologically, uh, to get your mind right for the possibility that, you know what, um, I, I just might have to fight for my life, not for that guy's life or this girl's life, but for my own, simply because of who and what I represent. And those are that was an awesome um, way of going through that and giving you know the examples of what happens and where your state is at. So I appreciate that, and I know our listeners will appreciate that as well. One of the things that is again to your career, you've done a lot of different positions, and you've been on patrol, but you've also been on what they would consider. Uh, specialty units or in some departments, maybe it's, you know, detective positions and stuff like that, whatever it is, however they categorize it. In your experience, though, with dealing with, you know, uh, being on patrol or even training patrol officers, uh, you said defensive tactics and also firearms instructing and possibly other things like uh, criminal interdiction while on the street or whatever the case is. Yeah. You've been on you. You've been that and trained those, and then you've also been in the small team environments, which are more of the coveted positions: uh, mm -hmm. motor unit, gang detective. You know these aspects. Do you see a difference in the mindset between the two? And if you do, yes. what are they? Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so the reason why you go into a, uh, a specialty unit, I'll put quotations left and right of that, because um, there's really nothing special about them, only for the fact that it, it is a selection process. That's the only reason why they call them specialty units. Anybody out on the street in patrol can do gang interdiction. Anybody out on the street on patrol can do narcotics interdictions. Anybody on the street on patrol can do what a neighborhood watch bike unit can do. It's just the mere fact that you have to go through a selection process, quotations left and right, to show and prove that you can belong to a, a, a small unit. But once you get into that unit, the selection never stops. In patrol, the selection 
is by mere appointment. You're on midnights, you're on day work, you're on evenings. Um, so you're assigned your patrol area and what you do with it is up to you. If you decide to go someplace else, it's because you want to become this select person to come out of patrol into a specialty. But once you get into that specialty, you have to continue the level of expectations that they are asking you of those five questions when you go through that board process. Will you meet the standards that we are asking you in this panel interview of these five questions? Will you maintain the selection of our process? Will you be who you represented on that panel interview? So the difference, the differences there are if you go through patrol, and I'm not bashing patrol because patrol is the backbone of everything. It is the intel of the streets. It is the it it, it supplies firsthand knowledge of geographical areas and subject matter experts of a particular area for these specialty people, again, air quotes. But these individuals rely on them. So no bad blood there, nothing like that. But I'm just saying that these uh, select uh, individuals who are now either detectives or task force officers or uh, just say uh, community or bike, bike patrol officers, they're hyper-focused on one particular mission. So their mindset and their training is um, interdictions. They look for things in particular that are so, um, uh, let's say, glossed over by the normal patrol officer because the patrol officer is going from call to call to call to call. They don't have time to uh, drive down the road, see a guy that might have a dangling muffler or uh, see, well, uh, so on inauguration, let me parlay this into a, into a, uh, into a real story. Um, stopped a guy uh, on two, in 2016 uh, for dead tags, found cocaine uh, and some gummies and some, uh, some licky chewies, you know, some narcotics that were inside of his bag. Uh, but it was all from an expired tag. I walked up. I could identify immediately that this person was shady. Um, his his uh, demeanor um, wasn't right, but that's only because of my knowledge, training, experience, and having to deal with these these people every day um, that I was able to parlay that into five felony charges, um, and uh, it was off of one simple dead tag. But the normal patrol officer doesn't have time to deal with all that. Um, they might simply stroke them a ticket uh, and not dive deeper. But it's because of my past experiences I was able to, to parlay that one traffic stop into something larger. The, the selection of a specialty uh, unit or specialty officer, it never ends. And I say that because you have your peers that are in that group that are constantly evaluating you as you are them, your supervisor 
that is constantly evaluating the team as a whole. Um, and they hold each other accountable. I think that's the big difference. The biggest difference between the patrol and a specialty unit or a select unit is the fact that within the specialty unit, if you start to fall apart, that the unit within itself will hold you accountable and they will address you as a unit, not as an individual. That's the biggest difference. I think that that definitely goes into this next question as far as just segueing. You talked about accountability and you know the, these small team environments and from my experience as well, they do hold you accountable and it is more of a team, kind of this small team atmosphere where you get to know each other um, pretty in depth. And on patrol, it was different. Uh, I, I will say it was different and it was more self-initiated uh, as far as your ambition and what you wanna learn and how you wanna learn it and then how you wanna apply it. And then who do you surround yourself with, right? And you don't have to do that. Uh, if you're on patrol, you can, in a sense, hide. Um, but one of the big things that goes with patrol or even with law enforcement specialty or not is this word compartmentalizing. Mm -hmm. And I used to hear that in the academy. I heard that mm -hmm. pretty much as a part of indoctrination with what you mm -hmm. have to mentally do when you start working um, immediately. And you hear it from your field training officer as well, the word compartmentalizing. How is that in your career? How is that a positive thing for mindset? And how is it negative? Can you speak to both? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I've had uh, two friends kill themselves because of compartmentalization. Mm. Um, very sad. Uh, and I, I blame it on the inability uh, for, them to for them to recognize their weakness. So <clears throat> we're all type A personalities um, in law enforcement where we believe that we're right no matter what, right? Uh, we will defend ourselves and we will defend others that we agree with. Um, but if we were to argue with someone, we will argue against a point vehemently until they either acquiesce or um, they simply um, agree to our, or we just simply just walk away from them and cut them out of our lives. And that works both professionally and personally. So there's a lot of, you know, separations and divorces and, hardships and relationship, uh, personal relationships with people, because we seek someone of like mind, right? Um, so it's difficult for any one of us um, who has witnessed the worst in humanity to go from that to a noise complaint, i.e. a cat meowing too loud. Foxes having sex in the trees that sound like a baby crying or screaming for help. Um, uh, all kinds of, of mundane things. When we just got finished witnessing um, uh, some young man or woman uh, blowing themselves up into a, into a tree on prom night. Um, 
so you go from that to the next call. Well, you can't, you can't just sit there and, 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 and stew on it. You have to compartmentalize, right? So I treat compartmentalization much like a, a, an air compressor. So it depends on the size of the tank, but every tank has its full, mm. right? Mm-hmm. So if your tank and you're, you're, you're forcing all of this badness into you and you have to go to the next call and deal with the next call, then you go to the next call and you deal with the next call and you don't have the ability or you don't have the release to blow yourself off, to blow off uh, some of that stress that you just saw. Because not anyone, um, I mean, I don't care if you came from the military, I don't care if you came from um, a mortuary, no one wants to see what we see. Uh, No one strives for it, and if you do, you need to seek help. Um, honestly, I mean, if anyone were to say, Oh, I love war. Well, yeah, you might want to seek help. Um, I've seen it and it's not fun. Um, I just, I just, and when, when you see someone who goes from call to call to call and they have Nobody that they can relate to on the squad that they can talk to. Those are the ones that you see later in their careers are the most obnoxious and loudmouthed and um, angry individuals that you know, okay, that guy, he's got issues either at home or at work. And it's not the supervisors or the latest SOP that came out under their name. It's the mere fact that they have compartmentalized all of the worst in humanity. And there's no way that they can release it. There's no one that has approached them and said, hey, what's going on? You know, talk to me. Let me know what's, let me know what's happening. And I, I, I listened to... Uh, I think three or four podcasts ago, um, you spoke with uh, with another person that I immediately recognized. Um, and God bless him and his family. And thank you for bringing him up um, or on your show. But he brought it up expertly with empathy and sympathy um, in leadership, and recognizing when someone taking someone is taking on this compartmentalization. And there's no release. They have to be able to recognize this. Um, If they are familiar with their squad, they have to be able to recognize this as their first line. And give them a day. Give them two days. Call it off a sick leave, whatever. Um, Give them a station assignment. Give them a break. Uh, They have to be able to to release that, that stress. Compartmentalization is positive in the immediacy of the mission, but you have to release your air tank. There has to be a release at some point. You can't harbor what you have in your, ha- in your heart and your head forever. You have to release it. I love that, I love that metaphor that you just gave. Um, as I sit here and 
you know, listen to the sound of an air compressor and the releasing of it, because it is, it, it just fills up uh, inside you and years and years of you just dealing with this. And, you know, even home life, you don't necessarily have people, especially if you're married or boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever the case is, have no clue what you do on a day to day and how you deal with things. And then you go home and, you know, you don't really trust what their possibility of advice would be because they just don't know. Um, and that's what we tell ourselves, right? We compartmentalize even that. And so therefore there's this disengagement with sharing with these, with these people that, you know, love us and care for us. And yeah. Well, and yeah, I think, I think the difference, I think the difference here though is, and in, in you, you brought it up, right? So you have someone that loves and cares for you and that person does not want to see you hurt. Right? They want to help you as much as they possibly can. So they want to impart wisdom. I think we're, and that loved one needs to hear this, is I'm not here asking for advice. And I've said this to my spouse. I'm not telling you, I'm not, I'm not telling you this story so I can get your opinion. I'm telling you this story so I can tell it. And I don't want you to repeat it. I just want you to hear me. I think that was, that's the biggest thing. That was um, your release. That, that was me. your release valve. That was my release. And she listened to me. Um, she kept her mouth shut. She cried. Um, and we talked. And that was it. She didn't give me her opinion. Um, she kept her mouth shut. And she didn't go talking and you know, blabbing among uh, you know, Facebook, and, uh, Instagrammers, whatever it is. Um, she didn't. She didn't relay this. She kept it between us, and I trust her not to do that, and she didn't. Um, but she was my release. She was my ability to release. Um, my partner on motors, um, he and I would talk all the time, um, and uh, he was my release. So I had work and I had home. Um, so I would, you know, I'd, I'd talk to him. You know, he, great guy. Uh, he was a, he was a, a tactical officer for a long time. Um, so we had, we were able to relate to each other, uh, pretty easily, but I had that work release and I had the home release. And I think people need to find that. Um, it's important. Uh, you need to be able to talk to someone, whether it be, even if you're single, uh, but you have a good friend on your squad. Do it outside the house, you know, do it at the apartment, but don't do it with alcohol. You know, alcohol is that crutch that a lot of people seem to, to fall into um, because that's not a true emotion, in my opinion. That is uh, something that's brought on that, uh, that only seems to generate more and more later on. Regret later on when you get sober, you're like, oh, shit, I shouldn't have said that, you know. And you, you touched on that too. Like, I love the fact that you're talking about, you know, you have two releases and it's all about talking and sharing to, to close individuals, whether it's on the job or whether it's at home. Part of the culture of policing, and I'm just, you know, maybe my podcast in the past few times have had this drumbeat of the culture of policing that I've seen, and I'm sure that you've seen, has been this culture of silence. And part of that silence is, as you just said, coping with it in a way 
that is unhealthy, alcohol, you know, going to the bar, almost a fraternity style type of coping where you're really not delving into anything that is going to help you um, mm-hmm. release that valve, right? You're only kind of, you're only suppressing it even more and you're kind of twisting it to where it's not whatever issues you are having, it's, it's making it uh, in a sense worse because you're truly not facing it head on in a, in right. a real way. Um, and so the mindset is not only inclusive with what you talked about earlier, which is training and you, you talked about the conditions and the different colors and, you know, all these things are incredible, but, you know, I think those are all correlated with not only just on the job stuff, but just even like scanning yourself and seeing where you're at. And part of what I want to change and help change in law enforcement is little by little to have this mental health piece. But, you know, to me, mindset deals with mental health. It deals with wellness. They're all synonymous. How do you feel that leaders that you've dealt with um, and interacted with in your career have dealt with like overall, you know, this mindset, this mental health of officers and what can be done better because of when you're a young officer getting into this job, you think you're indestructible and you mm-hmm. really think that you, you know, for whatever reasons, because you're young and your mindset's different, you know, you really don't know how you're going to deal with these things. And you just think, oh, like I'm in this job and you really think that you can handle all this stuff, but you can't. Nobody can. So, no. you know, I just ask you that, like as far as the leadership and what you've seen in dealing with that, and then also what would be your opinion to kind of help change this culture of silence? Uh, that's a good one. And it's, uh, it's one of those tricky tricky questions, right? Um, because uh, some departments have developed a, a peer support group. Uh, some departments, uh, even in the federal side of it, have employed uh, clinical psychologists that are specifically assigned to the department. Mm-hmm. Um, and their job is to go out and to follow up on officers who have been through a stressful environment or stressful situation, uh, whether the life of someone uh, had been lost or the life of someone that had uh, threatened. And it's perceived that this person or this officer might need uh, a release, right? Well, the problem with that and in some instances is that now that officer is going through some type of clinical treatment um, and the right to privacy, um, are they the employee of that agency that they are employed by and are they mandated to report their findings to their department? Mm. Um, Whereas, in some states and localities, they have protected the privacy of statements of, unless they are uh, threatening statements of the employee, uh, then they are not mandated uh, to report. Again, unless they say something you know, completely obvious, like, oh, I'm going to kill myself. If I get my gun back, I'm going to kill myself. Then, yeah, obviously, you know, you're a mandated reporter. Um, 
However, um, the trust, there's a trust factor that whatever I say can't be repeated back because you then open yourself up. And again, as a type A personality, you never want to perceive vulnerability, but you have to give yourself up. You have to be vulnerable. Um, as a leader, as, um, as a, currently as a team lead, um, and having been involved in several instances over the last several years where I've recognized someone that is stressed, um, I would immediately remove them from a rotation. I would, um, give them time to work out, decompress, um, to, uh, to speak to me. And I would, the first thing out of my mouth is this is not a judgment against you. This is not a condemnation against you. I'm just saying to you right now, uh, I think you need to, to release. I think you need something. So my door is always open. And that was the first thing. Um, and go, you're off the rotation. And usually it would take about three days and then they would come back and say, Hey boss, I'm going to be back on rotation. I'm good to go. Uh, and then we'd have a talk. But as a leader, in, as it relates to law enforcement, we are so skeptical of someone coming to our assistance and trying to help us that we say no. We say no faster. Uh, because we distrust what the end goal would be. We're, we're afraid of what's going to happen. We're afraid that we could lose our job. We're afraid that we're not having the, we don't have the ability to carry a firearm anymore because of um, the firearms regulations. Um, we're afraid. Um, we're afraid of the stigma that, oh, well, they're going to go see, you know, Dr. Umptifrats, you know, because, you know, uh, that guy, that guy saw a dead chick in a car, you know, mm -hmm. um, that guy, that guy, or that, that, that girl, you know, she saw, uh, some dude blow his head off right in front of her and you know, she couldn't handle it. So it's the squad stigma. Um, but if anyone were, if anyone were to ever come to me and call me a pussy because I went and sought help, over some of the things that I saw, they'd better be in a guarded stance because I would attack them like a spider monkey. Um, it is you, you victimize yourself and you become the victim. If you have the inability to speak and relate and to deal and to cope with the things that you see and you are not able to release. And if there is a leader that is out there that sees someone that has the inability to relate, that is uh, to, to communicate with you, and if you don't have the ability to communicate with them, that, hey, look, uh, I see, you just went and witnessed this, uh, this tragic event, um, whether it be a citizen or whether it be law enforcement. Um, I think if they don't recognize that and they don't speak to it, 
then they are doing a disservice to their entire squad. And I think leadership uh, on high, uh, I'm talking on high from the, the chief on down, if no one in that seat right there does not take the initiative to open the door without judgment, uh, I think that person uh, is failing his entire department or her entire department. Uh, I don't care where it is. Uh, that right there, that person needs to lead the way, uh, not just in policy, but in practice. Everything that you said um, hits at the core of this change that needs to happen, which starts with, as you just put it, leadership. And, you know, that leadership has to be more about the officer and the person that encompasses that uniform as opposed to the political narratives of the day. Or, you know, as one of my guests, Al, put it, you know, chasing this brass ring, whatever that is for that. Uh, yeah, yeah, I heard that, yeah. You know, and so, yeah, I mean, it, all these things are a needful change. And one of the things that I keep hearing from you that keeps, that keeps uh, in my head rattling around is there has to be this informal leadership like yourself or other uh, podcast guests that I've had where they may not be in a power position to be able to kind of be this, the, the head of the spear in a sense for this change. But you can be, you know, that seed of change within a squad or within a unit to be able Absolutely. to talk about these things and to be able to take that leadership role and, and, you know, put that out there as this is not a stigma and we are not going to do this as a squad. Um, you know, and, and that's where I think a lot of this has to come from. It has to come from master police officers or, you know, the guy that's the most respected on the squad or on the unit. And, you know, that coupled with everything that you're talking about, the positive coping skills, which is, you know, some people just don't have it. Some people have no clue that, you know, going out and drinking is not a positive coping skill because, again, they may have come from college <laughs> and that yeah. was their positive yeah. coping skills, right? Yeah. Going to parties and drinking and stuff like that. So it's just kind yeah. of a extended college kind of atmosphere. Yeah, I can't um, believe that our chess team lost tonight. Oh, let's go drinking, <laughs> you know. Right. So come on. We're coming to the end of this, and you talked a lot about, uh, we're, we talked a lot about the mindset, and it's so important, not only for just the operational aspect and trying to be the best that you can be, whether it's stress inoculation through, you know, shooting, firearms, uh, instructing, whatever the case is, defensive tactics, even learning about how to deal with certain calls, and and then going from there to, the mindset of just being aware of yourself, that being aware of others that you work with uh, as a leader, but also as an informal leader as well. What would you like for listeners to take away from this podcast in relation to mindset in all that it encompasses? So when you look at uh, mindset and its definition, um, it is a 
it is a culmination of your belief, your system of beliefs, your moral compass, your morals, uh, right from wrong, knowing right from wrong, and applying them to one specific ideal. That's your mindset. If you take mindset and you place that into a tactical environment, and again, I repeat that we are tactical athletes. As a tactical athlete, you have to, you have to be able to function under low stress and high stress within a quarter of a second. I encourage everyone who is in this environment to take the mindset of, I will win. I will win every engagement. I will win no matter what, but I will prepare myself. You can't win without preparation. You can't win without guidance. You need to seek out professional guidance, whether it be someone on your squad. That person might not be a senior person on the squad. It might not be a supervisor, but it could be that, that man or woman that that um, that epitomizes what you're seeking. You have someone that is an expert shot. Go talk to them, her, whomever. <laughs> Non-binary, gender-specific. Go find them, right? Um, go seek out that training. Um, O2X is a great website to go to. Police One is a good website to go to um, to seek out some additional training. Um, on all of these, uh, go to your, uh, to your employee group. If you have an employee group, um, and seek out if they have additional training that is offered through them, that is paid for. Um, but seek out, be a student of the profession, be a student of what you've obligated your life to and swore an oath to and take it seriously. Don't rest until you retire <laughs> and, then, and then maybe get another job. It's a little, a little bit more stressful, but um, enjoy your time with the people that are on your squad. If you see someone that is messing up, say something. Um, if you feel yourself being uh, less than perfect in something, strive to achieve perfection. You might not reach the perfection, but you are improving every day. And I've seen it. I've seen it and I know it happens. I saw one guy fail the academy. He came back the next year and he shot perfect scores throughout his entire academy and throughout his entire career. And God bless him for it. Uh, because I know he elevated himself into a supervisory position and he is an awesome leader. And he always came to me and he said, it's because of what you told me uh, that I might've failed today, but I will succeed later if I seek out the training, if I seek out additional education. So seek it out, be better than what you are today and always improve yourself. And that will translate to others. That's an incredible message, and I love it. You said earlier, strive to survive, and then you end this with, I will win. Those, those two is what stands out in the mindset 
of not only law enforcement, but I just think that should resonate with everybody, right? You strive to survive, however that is, and I will win whatever that means, whether it's incremental wins on a daily basis, like you just talked about, bettering yourself, however that looks like. And all this translates to not only your profession, but also in your personal life, which is, I think, even more important. Um, Mike, thank you so much for these insightful uh, words and also just talking about yourself and your career and how you've applied all these things and what you've seen. Thank you so much for honoring this podcast and listeners to listen to you. And uh, again, just thank you, sir. No, thank you, MC. And I wish all your listeners a, uh, a happy new year. I know this is or late, late in the new year, but I hope this year is uh, going to be is going to be good for them. I hope that uh, they they build up. Thank you, Mike. Thanks, MC. Appreciate it.